Welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. So I've had a lot of therapy with a lot of different therapists, but only one of my therapists has been a person of color and none of them have been adoptees themselves. Today's guests, Angela Gee and Robin Joy Park, are both Asian adoptees and licensed therapists based in the LA area who serve the adoption community. They are also two of our warmest, most generous guests yet. I first crossed paths with Robin almost 10 years ago now when she co-facilitated a post-birth family reunion discussion group in Seoul. And more recently, we saw Angela and Robin speak at this year's Khan conference. When we approached them via email to talk on the podcast, their enthusiastic replies were like beams of sunshine radiating through our screens. Don't you just love emails and people like that? In this conversation, Angela and Robin talk about how they became therapists who specialize in adoption, the challenges and rewards of this work, how their mentorship relationship turned into a professional partnership and a deep friendship, the online community they've built for adoptees of color, some practical advice for adoptees looking for a new therapist or seeking therapy for the first time, and more, all with wisdom, candor, and humor. Two more things before we get started. First, we've got a series of writing workshops coming up starting on the 28th of November, featuring some of our favorite adoptee writers. These writing workshops are all free and open to writers of all levels, so please consider applying. For more information and for instructions for how to apply, please head to adoptedfeels.wixsite.com. Second, shout out to our newest Patreon, Danny Calcutt. Thank you so much for your support. So, hi, Robin and Angela. Uh, thank you so much for meeting us today on your um, at your Friday cocktail hour time. <laughs> um, we've been so excited to have this conversation. Um, can we just start by um, asking you maybe briefly to introduce yourselves? Sure. I was born first, so I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was born quite a long time ago when adoption in the U.S. was in race only. And so I'm Chinese and I was born in New Orleans in Louisiana. And hence, at that time, they looked far and wide to find a Chinese family for me to join. So I was adopted there and then quite quickly uh, we came to California. And so I was raised in California by a much older Chinese immigrant family. So my environment, because my dad was in aerospace, uh, was in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. In elementary school, I was the only Asian person. In middle school, a couple of Asian people. High school, still a handful. So at the time, it felt you know, really like a fish out of water. However, I really felt Chinese. So I didn't have that part of the difficulty in figuring out my identity. Uh, but I did always want to be white when I was a kid uh, because I wanted to fit in. Yeah, so that's my background. And I'm also uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist here in town. That's me. Thank you. Oh, one other thing. I'm also an adoptive parent. And so my husband is white. So we are a transracial family and uh, adoptive family. And my daughter is uh, born in China, in Guangzhou. 
she's a full adult, so she's made it this far. (laughs) (laughs) I um, am also an intercountry adoptee. Uh, I was born in South Korea um, alongside the both of you, um, but also just uh, grew up in the land of gazillion adoptees, or as we call it, Minnesota. Um, And yeah, have really, for much of my life um, in my immediate and extended family, have been surrounded by other um, inter-country adoptees, particularly from South Korea, um, and uh, have been pretty actively involved in the community in different ways. Um, Minnesota, because we have so many uh, Korean adoptees specifically in that part of the country. Um, there was always different types of camps or resources I grew up being a part of. Um, so uh, that's kind of where my my upbringing um, was. And then I spent a significant amount of time um, kind of traveling and living in Korea and just meeting other adoptees overseas and um, just soaking in being back in the motherland and then have now transplanted myself here in Los Angeles, um, where I've been since 2009. Yeah, have been on a lot of different different journeys, but really find myself now um, as also a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, practicing here in Los Angeles uh, alongside Angela. Thank you. Um, can we talk about like how you both came to work as therapists um, and if you always wanted to work with the adoption community? Well, you know, as an adoptee, uh, I really had no support at all about being an adoptee for the vast majority of my life. And, you know, but life was good. (laughs) And also becoming an adoptive parent, which felt very good too, I kind of felt that things had worked out pretty well. And so I was really wanting to do something more useful in life. And so I thought that if I could become part of the community clinically, so I got trained so that I could, you know, really help other families. And when I did get trained, I could see that, you know, that adoption was one of the parts of many of our identities that that everyone grapples with. And so I've now expanded my work, but that is the reason that I came to become a therapist was to work with our community. Little did I know it would be so complicated. (laughs) I actually kind of unexpectedly landed in this field. Um, I didn't realize, I think, until going into graduate school that I've always had this lens or this way of viewing the world. I think as a transracial adoptee, we oftentimes know going into a room, like we're very, very mindful of like our surroundings and just um, I've been very aware of just our place in this world. And I think adoptees just in general, we're very hyper vigilant and sensitive. So I think I've always been a very big feeler. I just didn't have like the language or the theories or the tools or the education or trainings to really like articulate that. So when I entered graduate school in a um, clinical psychology program, actually the same program that Angela also went to, um, I I realized I was like, I felt like I was at Hogwarts. I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) my people, like the language and like just had this like incredible, like my Ravenclaw came out and I just, I, I loved studying and learning and just being surrounded by like-minded folks and just having like new tools or or abilities to kind of deepen my work. And so I did, I always did want to be involved in the adoptee community in some way. I think I've always 
um, whether that's community organizing or just um, participating in things, going to gatherings or whatever it has been. I've always wanted to have that be a primary focus of, of or proximity to my work. And so I think um, this gave me another whole new area to really focus on within our community because I had, you know, for many years been doing different types of local organizing here with adoptees in Los Angeles. And um, I just, I really wanted to do and focus on a specific area of need, which is mental health and just realizing what a great need it is for adoptees all across the world, but also just really specifically here in Los Angeles and and just seeing how neat is, I got connected to Angela that, wow, there's like a little pack of us here. Um, so I just feel like I kind of landed in, you know, this field in a really beautiful way. Um, and actually my younger sister, who's also created up the really, I think, um, kind of encouraged me because she was also in a marriage and family therapy program in Minnesota and was like, Robin, you're a therapist. Like you need to, yeah, go on that track. Um, Cause I was contemplating some other areas. And so I think I just felt like I was kind of coming home to myself uh, when I, I really landed in this field and in this practice and then being able to serve my community. You know, I, I sometimes say like, you know, you do what you love and you love what you do. And, and I just, I feel sometimes so humbled by this work that this is something I actually get to do um, and and journey alongside individuals and families, which is pretty phenomenal. So, I think that's kind of interesting because I know that, um, that you've also been involved in uh, more kind of activist advocacy work uh, in the community. And maybe I'm kind of I'm probably simplifying it a bit, but in my mind, working, say, one-on-one therapeutically and then that more activist spirit like seem quite different? Yeah, it's a different... Uh, I think I'm trying to still figure out how to integrate both. You know, earlier today I was on a call about some human rights commission work in Korea and just trying to think of how our stories, our own personal journeys and injustices even within the community, how we can continue to shine light on those and do different forms of advocacy or... Um, just bring our issues to like the broader community. And, and so I think I, I, I find that I'm trying to strike that balance of still doing advocacy work or speaking my truths and also sharing my story, um, which also is an interesting line as a therapist because of like disclosure and, you know, just certain things that, um, you know, my story is, is, is out there. And so I think I've had to be mindful of um, that professionally and balancing that. But I do think that these days, I, as much as I love the, the macro, like kind of more policy and, and advocacy work and organizing, I do also really love the really micro, um, intimate, you know, therapeutic work and relationships that um, I get to, I guess, serve the community in a different kind of way. And so it's always also being tricky, complicated, because I think in our community, it's like, you know, two degrees or one degree of separation. Like, you know, we know a lot of there's overlap and and things. And so I I do have to be mindful of that too. Yeah. I think that you, you know, mentioned something about the, you know, how to separate the personal from the professional. And, you know, I feel that we are such a small tribe in a certain way. I mean, we could be big, we could be small, it's global, but at the same time, I think it's about feeling, you know, a sense of trust that allows us to have boundary crossings without violations. And uh, it is not, you know, even having a conversation here is something then that puts various, you know, aspects of each of us out in the ether. And I feel uh, that being mindful of it, but I think that I'm not afraid of most disclosures. Is that something 
that you've become more comfortable with, like, I don't know, with experience and, and time spent in the community? Definitely. And, you know, as adoptees, we come in all stripes. And sometimes, you know, when you hear subtleties that feel like there could be a little bit more of a fuzzy sort of boundary line, you know, I think as hypervigilant adoptees, we take that in. So we understand kind of, you know, where we can have fuller uh, disclosures or fuller conversations. Uh, But with Robin, you know, we started out in a, in a specific hierarchical uh, relationship in which I was the supervisor and she was the supervisee, yet her knowledge base and work and everything is, was already so full. And, you know, so I felt more that we were in collaboration with so much of the part of our community, uh, even from that period of time. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, um, the therapeutic work. Um, th- this is a big question, but uh, I'll just jump in. Um, so I think many of us um, adopted people are aware of uh, some of the, of the common so-called issues that adoptees deal with, like trust or hypervigilance, as you mentioned, you know, attachment, uh, identity formation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that some of these issues can also be framed as strengths, um, or perhaps that as adopters we also have some like unique uh, psychological superpowers? Absolutely, I love. <laughs> I'm like huge into superheroes, supervillains, zombies, wizards. I mean, I think that we um, have so much to contribute. I mean, look at the narratives. I mean, a lot of those uh, superheroes or Jedi's, you know, have histories of adoption, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we have so much. Um, you know, I think this word is oftentimes used a lot, but resiliency and things that really, because of the depth of our pain or our own injustices we've experienced or traumas or just our own stories that we have a deep, deep well of understanding and information that can inform the way that we go out and can contribute to this world or show up in relationships or can um, heal, you know, or just even um, try to change the world. Because I think, uh, you know, there's, there's so much to the gifts that out of pain, out of loss, out of suffering, um, we absolutely, I mean, we are survivors. We have really, in so many ways, um, you know, we were just having this conversation actually earlier today about just how our ancestors really have, you know, for survival, you know, helped uh, go and make it through really difficult times and war and things that, you know, uh, here we are today. Out of that suffering, out of that pain, um, you know, we are able to now be able to look at future generations or our, our current world and try to be able to um, contribute and do things that I don't think, um, I don't know, maybe the average bear has that kind of experience or depth of understanding. Absolutely. And I also mm-hmm. think that, you know, when we're thinking about issues or symptoms that, you know, when we're working with individuals or even, you know, however we're broadcasting ideas is that in many ways, 
we can honestly reframe thing these different areas as protective factors. How did these things protect you? And how do you, do you need them now? And how useful are you? So, you know, hypervigilance was very useful when you needed it. And then, you know, that'll come into more of our conversations today about, uh, you know, our zones of arousal and different parts of our bodies are very valid and useful alarm systems. And unfortunately, with certain historical events, the they can get triggered, right? And so at a certain point, what can we do to calm ourselves to know that there actually is not a threat? As a follow-up question, I also just wanted to ask about what therapeutic techniques that you find most helpful in working with adoptees in your practice. Yeah, I appreciate that question because I think even something you said earlier was really looking at, you know, our unique issues or needs. You know, I think oftentimes we hear about the seven core themes or issues. Um, I, again, I always say that I didn't know those until I like started working in the field and um, was pleasantly surprised that there's been identified seven. Um, and, you know, <laughs> those being loss, guilt, grief, rejection, identity, control, and relationships. And, you know, I think that that really helped to normalize and validate a lot of things as an adoptee. And then I consistently um, make that a part of uh, the therapeutic practice or um, approach when I meet with families, when I meet with individuals, because I've found oftentimes that a lot of folks have no idea that there's seven or that they are those um, that have been identified. And so, uh, you know, I think that's been really helpful for me personally and then mm-hmm. clinically to mm-hmm. be able to name those and, at, you know, different ages and stages be able to work within some of those themes and issues. Um, and so that's really been um, a big thing that I always bring into the work. And then I think also, Really lately, we've, uh, Angela and I, along with some others, are really having big conversations about somatic work, like, you know, Mm -hmm. in your body type Mm. of work, different practices and modalities. I'm a big fan of somatic experiencing, SE, which was kind of founded by um, the works of of Peter Levine. Um, And I just personally, that's one of the types of therapies that I, I do. And I just um, like personally, I'm a client of, and I just think that because the body keeps the score and uh, a lot of our trauma as adoptees is preverbal, to me, it's really about the bottom up work. And I've always been in talk therapy doing the top down stuff. And I realized that it's all like, I need to do the complete opposite. Um, and mm-hmm. so I really, I've, that's a training and an area that I'm longing, um, and desiring to get, uh, certified and, and work in, um, but I think that that's a really big one um, right now that's on kind of the top of my list for techniques or, or modalities that really for adoptees, um, I think, are really important ones. Piggybacking on that, you know, one of the things about the seven core issues that I found to be very important for me personally, as well as clinically, is that it actually includes each member of the constellation. So it's the adoptee, the adoptive parent, and the birth parent. And imagining each one of those important uh, core themes actually impacting each one was kind of uh, depathologizing, right? So it's instead of being, you know, the identified patient, we realize that each part of the constellation has the things that we've always talked about, right? The grief, the loss, and whatever version of trauma there is. So I think that is truly um, has been helpful to have those conversations with 
new parents because oftentimes adoption is uh, a plan B, right? So they very likely haven't processed their own feelings. So I think that that's been helpful. You know, I think that psychological theories, trauma-informed attachment, you know, those various things, the thing that I feel like I have learned about it is really to have an adoptee-centered lens. So I really look at it from our point of view (laughs) instead of, you know, the other and instead of looking at. And I think that that really informs uh, the way that I work with families. And being a a marriage and family therapist, I work with family systems. So, you know, again, it's just one of the different modalities or theories that it it comes from. And and like Robin, understanding the impact, you know, work around, uh, you know, understanding the neurobiology of humans has been really a work of over 30 years, 35 I'm sure longer, but it's become so refined and actually is now accessible to everyone. So many people are getting trained in a lot of different uh, areas. I I was recently trained in EMDR and, you know, it is something that is so different than talk therapy because it's really just being able to access your body sensations, your emotions, and using that the person actually heals themselves in a lot of ways. You're there to, to monitor. So, yeah, I think we're looking at healing from a new perspective. Oprah's talking about it with Bruce Perry writing a book together. You know, The Body Keeps the Score has been read by many lay people. Nobody wasn't assigned in a class. So I think we're all understanding. You mentioned something about how now you're um, conscious of always approaching things from the adoptee perspective or through the adoptee lens. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, are you able to just like give us some non-identified example of what that looks like? Well, I mean, in treating young people, like you know, minors, oftentimes they are brought to therapy by the adults, mm. and so already you have a, a hierarchy of you know who needs fixing or attention, right? But in general, I think that, you know, some, I mean, research has been done, you know, the idea of the genetically normative family is the one in which everyone is genetically connected, right? And so when I'm looking at the experience of of adoptees through all these lenses, I have to take into account that you know, families of origin have all these different experiences that but I want to really center the experience of the adoptee instead of the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, <laughs> I, I guess, um, particularly if you're working with a lot of uh, adopted children and adolescents that um, the parent is probably initiating things and um, maybe telling their perspective first. And um, Yeah, and they often yeah. come with you know, because of behavioral issues or Mm -hmm. certain symptoms that the parents are seeing. And, you know, we're actually looking at them as superpowers a lot of the times. And I think that's kind of a beauty of having an adoptee-centric therapist, Mm -hmm. even an adoption-competent therapist who doesn't, who isn't really looking through our lens. And so, you know, I've had cases that I think that in other consultation environments, uh, they have seen that behavior as being extreme. 
And when I'm with my collaborators who are clinicians, we kind of go, yeah, you know, they're like, they're really empowering themselves. And so I guess that would pretty much figure in coming from an adoptee centric position is knowing what is a superpower, you know, and what is, or, you know, it could be considered a defense or Mm -hmm. a protective factor or a symptom, but we see it as, yeah, this is, you know, whether we're talking about sleep or dysregulation, which is a, is a very common experience Mm -hmm. and parents have a hard, you know, they, they have to do some psychoeducation on what those things mean. That's beautiful, actually. I just want to say that I think that, yeah, adoptee-centric reframing um, is a beautiful thing and, like, what I, what a, a gift to be giving these, like, young adopted people. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> I was wondering about how both of you, I guess, work with say some reticence from say the young person themselves that they might not think adoption really has anything to do with you know what they're struggling with at the time or the parent might not want to hear that adoption is maybe one of the reasons why their child is struggling with I don't know certain self-esteem issues or depression Um, and as in insofar as you're really centering the adoptee how I guess you do that without centering adoption as such a huge central part of their experience if they don't really see it that way or if they kind of haven't come to that understanding yet. Yeah, I think we get that, you know, especially with children and or adolescents who parents, like Angela said, they're bringing them in. It wasn't maybe their first choice on how they wanted to spend the afternoon or evening in a session with a therapist. So I think that there's a part that um, I think what, you know, we have the unique capacity to do is just to mirror something, even if it's just they may not um, be kind of aware as much as the parents are of our, our history or our profiles. You know, they probably, some kids say that they've read, you know, our um, our, our description of, of our work. But, you know, I think even just one as a person of color, um, for me too, I mean, again, sometimes the identities aside from that one being kind of external, the, the ones that aren't as known, um, you know, like for me, I identify as queer as well as, you know, the intersectionalities of, of being an adoptee. And I think that um, for me, it's just, even if they do know that fact about me, um, I don't have to say it to them, but if they know it, then they just, we hold that in that space and in that therapeutic relationship, it's just kind of a known. And, you know, I think it, it just on its own by, them knowing that there's a safety or a space that, wow, maybe this person in certain ways um, has a similar, you know, identity or intersectionalities of identity that um, they may not be able to articulate that quite yet at a young age, but maybe some of them feel it, that there's just this sense of like, I see you, I feel you, I get you, you know, and I think so much of that is conveyed, especially with children non-verbally through play or through being able to just hold space in a way that allows them to, because I think as adoptees, those questions and curiosities come out. Mm. They're, they're always in there. Right. Um, 
And we just kind of, I feel like our role is really to help bring in this space that allows this opportunity for those to kind of naturally bubble up. Um, so, you know, we're not necessarily forcing them to come out, even though maybe there's pressure for parents to address those issues, or I'm always seeing it through these underlying seven core themes or issues. But um, for especially younger children, I just think it's always having this space where they, they deeply feel seen and heard. Um, I think that just naturally provides an opportunity for them to um, feel safe in their body. And then if they want to drop into that a little bit deeper. Well, I think that that's, you know, I think there are certain elements of, of being a therapist, a clinician that kind of are across the board, what it's about, right? You meet people where they are, whether they're five or nine or 13 or 53. And, you know, adoptive parents will ask us, you know, is this happening because they're adopted? And literally, who knows? I mean, you know, we're really dealing with what's coming up, right? And trying to support that with their minor child. And and I think that, you know, as Robin says, it's so true, you know, like the attention and connection and attunement that we can hopefully create with a child is something a little bit unusual. You know, when you think about it, you know, what kind of adults give them this kind of forum to express, to feel, to be, you know, to guide, you know, because a lot of times I think that when we work with children, it's child led. So, you know, they don't have to fight with a peer or a sibling, like I want to do that. Or, you know, the parents saying it's time for this, you know, it's, it's this really beautiful, short period of time in which something that's validating on multiple levels, not just adoption race or you know things like it just feels like okay and so then we build on that for whatever period of time we have i'm just thinking about how a lot of schemes to get subsidized or affordable um counseling in australia perhaps it's capped right per year you have x amount of sessions and i was just one that just kind of made me think about um you talked about kind of establishing trust and meeting people where they are and the importance of creating that space um i'm wondering how you how you would kind of end the work how you draw that to a close and i don't know i'm just thinking for adoptees who might already have some concerns or ten tender spots about abandonment and stuff like that how you actually kind of draw things i guess up <laughs> it's it's hard on our side of the table as well you know mm. termination with a client as an adoptee clinician mm. is very painful it really is and you know i have just learned over time it wasn't like the first thing that came up for me like oh i know how to deal with this it's really been a process because sometimes you know, there's no telling how people will leave therapy generally. Sometimes it's super orderly for whatever reason. Sometimes it's like this total graduation, like, you know, peace out. And other times it's like, you don't know exactly why it happens, especially with kids. Mm. And so, you know, or when there's a client terminating, you just kind of know in your heart that it's not done. But we have to figure our own way in that, you know, through that as therapists. Yeah, that's some of our harder work. <laughs> it is. And I think, you know, I want to echo that, too, that it's really it's, uh, you know, the therapeutic relationship is such a sacred. I mean, it's such a fascinating relationship. Right. I kind of uh, I don't know. Sometimes it, it's so unique in its own 
capacity that when you have a termination or you know that that's part of the therapeutic journey and process. I think when I was first getting trained, I had the most difficult time. Um, and I noticed my adoptee stuff coming up with that, you know, of just kind of having this ambiguous loss or sudden, like, you know, I have no idea what they're doing because we have like laws and ethics around, you know, (laughs) post therapy. And, you know, I think that's really a tough thing when we sit with so much unknown as adoptees already um, and have kind of, you know, this ghost kingdom and then just to have clients then that kind of get go off in the universe and you have no control over that. I mean, that's one of like a a core theme and issue, right, that comes up. And I just remember that I, I was actually in my training at a, a high school and that actually helped me because there was kind of a natural sunset in the work because of the school year. Yeah. And I think that that was um, a great like first kind of round for me because I just remember being in my car certain days and just crying because it just was um, a really emotional experience. And I think that that's oftentimes maybe not talked about in you know, or the clients don't maybe realize like the other side of things and, um, you know, how just significant these relationships that are formed um, when they come to a close for whatever reasons, um, you know, it's, it's tender. It, it definitely pulls a lot of heartstrings. So, you know, when I'm thinking about your question about a planned, right, you, you know, uh, planned end to the therapy to the relationship as it as it the, the continuity of one chapter and you know I feel that what I try to do is to empower the client so I want to really feel like kind of you know like encapsulate the work that was done the the you know the, the what the the strengths that that have come through and I try to empower the client to feel like this is they're taking that with them and I feel that it's it it's the truth actually you know because we really talk about the gains and then the insights and how the work that they did and that they get to take with them I just wanted to add that I think it also can be, especially with the populations in the community that we work with, can be a really um, corrective experience as well, you know, to really have, uh, you know, a, a um, kind of a soft landing, you know, or ways in which you part that may feel different, um, but also some similar maybe undertones to it. But but just to really show that you can have, um, you know, healthy goodbyes. I think with kids, that's a big thing too. That oftentimes, maybe sometimes in therapeutic treatment, parents will just pull the children out of therapy. And I always think that that's so difficult, especially if they're adoptees, right? Because of just the history and the way in which oftentimes we don't have that opportunity or didn't. And so I think that there's a way in which if we can model that, and I think that's part of the way in which as a clinician, we have to really hold and be able to to have some of those more difficult conversations around termination or what that process is looking like and giving a lot of prep in advance and, and kind of having mm-hmm. a, a way in which or a ritual and, and a way to honor your work that can make that um, special. First, I just wanted to say that um, for some reason, <laughs> I never considered the perspective of um, a therapist who was also adopted. <laughs> and what that, yeah, the termination of like the end of... Um, <laughs> A client relationship must be. Um, and on that note, I was just wondering, um, yeah, as as a therapist who is adopted, working with um, within the adoption community, are there certain things that you that you each do to 
take care of yourselves um, and, yeah, and process all the things that must constantly come up for you personally. I'm looking at her. <laughs> I'm looking at, at you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, our connection and just the relationship that we've built over the years, I mean, tremendously, um, as I was reflecting on it earlier, just, you know, really Angela has been my, my compass, you know, when my uncharted new territory, becoming a new therapist, she kind of took me under her wing um, and really just was like, you know, the wind beneath my sails as I was trying to like go into new areas and, and not really sure of some like turbulent, you know, waters. And, and I just, I think that you need that person, you need that um, community space that can really be uh, just the safe place to, to talk about the, the unique joys and struggles of being a clinician, um, how much emotional bandwidth that takes the, just the process of, um, what that's like. And then also to be able to just as an adoptee, like just get it, you know, there's just ways that when we come together, we don't even have to say something. It just is like, just known. And so I think we've really, for me, it's just building out a, a safe space and um, a consultation space, particularly that are all adoptee clinicians and of color um, and of color. I think that's a really important uh, qualifier as well to just really get the work on us on a different level. Um, and then I think, you know, doing my own work, like always being in therapy, I think as a therapist, I think it's an obligation <laughs> to be in therapy because I think you need to be doing the work too. At least, um, for me, it's just really because it's such an activating, uh, profession. I think that I just need to have my own healing space and journey to do that work, um, and to just really be able to keep me in check and balance um, so that it doesn't interfere with the work. Um, so that's really important. I think that really having the support and like your people to just um, come together, you know, and, and do the work together um, and be inspired and as well as um, just kind of, yeah, just be able to journey together is, is super important. <laughs> Yeah. And it's kind of a miracle. I mean, that's a superpower in itself that we would be endeavoring to be useful in a realm that is the most activating part of who we are. Like, it already feels, you know, it's so intense inside of each of us being who we are. And yet, we've chosen that, you know, that path. But I do want to flip the script just a tiny bit here because, you know, how I got to know Robin was that one of my very close colleagues was supervising a fabulous, a fabulous intern. And she said, Angela, you really have to meet her. I'm like, that's great. I love that. And one day while I was facilitating uh, an adoptive uh, community group, which could be parents or adoptees uh, or birth parents with another colleague. Uh, in came Robin with John from Goal. I can't remember his last name. Mm -hmm. I met her and it was, well, you know, after that, it was just pretty much in the books, what should happen next. And, uh, you know, it turns out that she was an intern. And I thought, if I 
can spend more time with her. I can do it if I supervise her. And so I tried really hard. I auditioned so hard for that job. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the rest of history because, you know, we've been able to journey that part of a hierarchy to now one that really feels just so collaborative and natural. And, you know, we do have another segment, you know, we do have this space that, that is the thing that allows us to do this work because it's really triggering. (laughs) Sometimes when you don't expect it. I was listening recently to a a podcast by Tara Brach. I'm a big fan personally of Tara Brach. And um, she talked about how we're always like our personal journeys are always um, constantly evolving. And she talked about like working with your edge. That's the way she described um, that personal journey. And I was wondering for each of you, how do you, or how perhaps lately, how are you continuing to make sense of the ongoing impact of adoption in your own lives? Um, just something perhaps recently that you've been reflecting on or um, working with and perhaps what has been helpful for each of you personally in your healing? That, that's, sorry, that's a really big question. but um. I didn't realise it when I was in training and becoming a therapist that the healing was going to come back to me. And I think pretty much every single thing I've done in my community. So, you know, I also have done workshops with Robin. I, you know, lead different kinds of groups and in support in various, you know, all kinds of things. So there's, I present at conferences and I also teach a, like a workshop at Uh, our alma mater on the psychology of adoption. Mm. And so all of these things are about moving it forward as a, as a whole, but what comes back to me, you know, like I have learned so much through my clinical relationships with clients and a lot of things can be very difficult, but I think that I have so much space for empathy and compassion for almost everything. And that that's really been the healing for me that's ongoing. Yeah, I think it's it's remarkable, you know, that we get to do the work alongside our clients or, you know, our families that we're working with. And I think that's what is also such an honor and like such a humbling process and journey. I think when I come up against and brush up against some of my own edges or limits even, I think it's these days really when I'm you know, particularly I've, I've worked in, in the foster care and adoption system here in LA County. And I think that that really rocked me in a new way as an intercountry adoptee coming from kind of private adoption uh, background and just really having a limited kind of perspective on adoption. And so I think that that really just expanded my whole understanding and seeing it through so many different um, lenses. And so I think that that really, I don't know, I guess, brought me to a new kind of understanding and just to a point that um, I felt in some ways was limited in my own experience. You know, I mean, having been in foster care, but as an infant for really just a, a small amount of time, um, you know, for me was just such a different experience to be working with kids who had had, you know, multiple placements, some, you know, more than their age, you know, and I think that that just brought up a whole nother um 
you know, aspect to the work and also just complex and deep issues around foster care and adoption that um, while I've been kind of knowledgeable or, or more so have experience of it within Korea, it just was a whole different ballpark for me. So I think that that just kind of um, had me, you know, learning and feeling some new things um, and now just having a different perspective just on adoption because I see it in so many different ways now, uh, maybe than I did before. Angela, from what I took from what you said is that um, working with uh, so many different people and, um, and in different ways within the community has perhaps like um, expanded your, um, it's expanding it for yourself maybe like in, um, at the same time as, yeah, for others. Very much. Yeah. Yes, very much. You know, I think that, you know, when we do <clears throat> dyadic work or we do um, work on healing, so much about that is for one side to really understand and feel, acknowledge the experience of the other side, right? The other person or the, and I think that as a clinician, it comes very naturally for me. I mean, they kind of say that when you're a therapist, you have to find something to love in your client. And sometimes it's not easy for whatever reason. But if you're going to have any real relationship, you have to find that space. So I think that those are things that have given me a lot of peace and acceptance regarding my own experience. Can we maybe uh, now talk about um, the group that you created by us for us um, and like what, what inspired that and what are some of the, the challenges and rewards of, of building community like across different um, groups of transracial adoptees and generations? Um, yeah. Well, it was the pandemic <laughs> and it literally... <laughs> You know, it was a pretty global situation. And Robin and I do really appreciate being able to connect with our community. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I can't quite remember the exact how it happened. But just like so many things we do, it really happened just kind of organically and naturally and then became a thing. And then we, you know, uh, it was so funny because it was called the Young Adult Adoptees of Color Group that would meet every other week. And it was immediately clear that young adult was really a, a funny label, right? So very regularly, I would get emails, I'm 29, am I too old? Or, you know, I'm 32, or I'm 27. And you're like, oh, my God. And, you know, it's so clear, right? So developmentally, we're all at our own speed. It's not chronological. And I think it, it feels so good to imagine our connections. Like, you know, whenever, whenever a wider group comes in, you know, like of a, a more inclusive feeling so that we can understand what our connections and differences are, it is so, uh, we're so thrilled, you know, to be able to be in a space that is, is wider, yeah, I think that was so important in, you know, when I've done a lot of more exclusive kind of Korean adoptee spaces and, and 
work and then really wanting to now expand that and have greater conversations and, and intersectionalities of identities and, um, you know, bring in intercountry adoptees with transracial adoptees with domestic adoptees, you know, just really having that um, common denominator really that brings us together is, yeah, it's adoption, but really just having really, um, especially during a pandemic, a space that we could all kind of just come together and be like, you get it. <laughs> Cause I think we all felt so isolated in our own ways, which the pandemic did just to anyone. Um, but I think we really personally, we're kind of desiring a space and, and also just recognize that there might be a need for this too, you know, like, so what if we held space and just kind of uh, could talk about just really week to week, what was coming up. And, um, and that started, you know, over a year ago, and here we are still, still holding space. Now it's monthly versus it was biweekly. But um, I think alongside like my weekly zoom dance uh, <laughs> groups that Angela, actually, we would have this weekly ongoing zoom dance with, with some folks that we had never even met before, but that, and then having this space um, for adoptees of color, uh, you know, on the regular truly helped, me get through the pandemic um mm. and we're just so like filling and um continue to just be a really really sacred space and so wild right i mean the idea of what our intention was together of you know just having somebody to hold on to virtually and then having questions that just explode out of from all of our issues around adoption transracial adoptive families, uh, you know, racial violence, all of these things that then would fold back onto our questioning of our identities and who's going to support us. And, you know, people were sharing how hard it was to have their families understand what they were going through. And I mean, it really, it just became at a certain point, we were all kind of going through that experience together. It was a lot of really important support. So I interviewed um, some Korean Australian adoptees during, it just happened to be during COVID. It wasn't, wasn't the point of uh, COVID had nothing to do with the research project, but um, something that I did notice and I've seen kind of reflected in some online spaces too, is that what COVID has done is this sense of like, urgency for birth family search, right? Or this urgency with regard to now that I can't go to Korea, now I want to even more. And it's the first thing I'm going to do when COVID lifts. It's like, and there's just this like sense of shit, I thought I'd have all the time in the world. And then on top of that, also, I think um, some people commented on, well, what about my Korean family? that I don't know, I've never met, know nothing about, how are they coping with COVID? Um, and I'll just never know. Um, and so I, holding all of that during this time, um, I was, yeah, I guess curious if those sorts of themes also came up in the groups that you were running, I guess just because so much of the discussion, I think has rightly been dominated by experiences of racism, but that COVID has also created all these other forms of grief that may not be talked about as much. The ambiguous loss. I mean, it's so much about, you know, and this is the, the beauty of our spaces, right, that we have just right now and in any other community spaces that uh, a lot of people don't understand why we might have that feeling, but we do, right? And that is 
there are a lot of things that are ambiguous losses for everyone, right? You know, things where what we're experiencing isn't something that is the norm. And therefore, you know, what do you, why are you, you know, why are you feeling that way? You don't need to feel that way. It doubles down during that time period because we can't know, you know, we can have concern and and not be able to know. Yeah. I think, you know, to add to that, you know, ambiguous loss became something that suddenly was accessible to everybody in the pandemic globally, right? And something for us as adoptees that we've always known in our body, whether we recognized it or not. And I think that it was kind of, I've heard other adoptees say this too. It's like, well, welcome to the party. <laughs> like now you get it. You know, what our our world is like kind of on a day to day. And I think that there was something that um, I noticed even in our, you know, the spaces we're holding are just even personally that it was just kind of having almost this uh, new culture around this, right? That before, um, you know, for us as adoptees, like how do you grieve, um, you know, when there isn't really a culture around this, around ambiguous loss or like around maybe our birth family or just different ways in which separation has um, existed, you know, in our in our lives. And so I think, you know, disenfranchised grief then, you know, which is another term and really just is now really being experienced widely by others, you know, is something that we, again, also have a common denominator in, whether that's like, oh, the graduation or prom that I didn't get to have, or, you know, the unexpected um, missed career opportunity, or, you know, thing that you didn't get to do, or you lost or did not get to experience because of the pandemic, right? We just have these different types of disenfranchised grieving. And so I think that now we have a little bit more of a culture or a container that we're building around how to hold that or how to honor and grieve, because I think we are all really deeply grieving um, as this pandemic is kind of relentlessly continuing. Um, And so kind of going back to our adoptee superpowers, I think that that's been something that we've like already been doing this for a really long time. Right. Um, And I think, so we, we, we've known it and we've felt it in our bodies so that we've been able to, you know, I think in some ways, even though it's been incredibly difficult, I don't want to make light of it, but that um, there's something in our, our superpowers that have really made it so that we can, um, get through this in a way that, um, I don't know now that maybe other people who hadn't had to experience these types of loss or grief, um, are suddenly now becoming more aware of. Mm-hmm. We had a final question about, um, any general advice for adoptees who are perhaps looking for a new therapist or, or looking, uh, to undertake therapy for the first time. And and I guess these days um, a lot of that would take place online. Do either of you have any um, general advice on this? And because we had mentioned somatic modalities earlier, like EMDR or um, other things, um, is that still um, possible online? Yes. yeah it absolutely is i mean i've done my somatic experiencing uh virtually you know normally it is very like hands-on and in person it's 
a different experience, but it, it is possible. You know, clinicians have also had to pivot and really um, figure things out. But I know EMDR definitely is still being utilized online and there's some actually neat tools or apps to help, you know, enhance that work. Um, and then I think, you know, that the neat part right now is that it's also maybe in some ways made it um, possible to do some new things. I think, you know, or I've found in play therapy, it's challenged me in new ways, but also made some fun, innovative ways to, you know, integrate different types of work into the, the practice, like animal crossing or, you know, doing different types of games with kids that you get to kind of go into a whole different world. Um, but sorry, going back to the somatic work. Yes, it absolutely is still possible. Um, and I think that that's neat that there's, you know, the somatic experiencing is one of the kind of camps. And then there's sensory motor psychotherapy, which is another kind of camp of, of somatic work. And there's all different types of, you know, somatic work. Um, Sorry, my dog. <laughs> like she just knows what to do. Um, so, so, sorry. Jar jar. Uh, so yes, there's a lot of different. I know. Types of- <laughs> She's been silently here the whole time until now. Um, yes, there's types of way- ways to do somatic work. <laughs> I'm just noticing somatic response to this. <laughs> Jarby's like, what time is it? Mom? <laughs> she just wanted to come to the party. Good girl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I was just going to say this very, it's so hard to find a therapist that I would want to find for myself or my family. You know, that's how I feel about how specific the work is. And I think that having a therapist who is trauma informed, very aware of grief and loss, you know, those kind of things in the event that there are other areas, you know, that are not that world that I seek to center it's not easy to find a therapist that way. Yeah. I mean, these days there is a a resource directory. I know it's um, kind of U.S. specific, but it is adoptee clinicians who are, are all kind of been identified. And, um, and so I know that that's a great resource as well, but um, you know, I think even as Angela and I have found out even here in Los Angeles, while it's a big city, you know, there's uh, a small, you know, niche of us that are, are specializing or just kind of really centering our work in adoption uh, focused therapy. So, you know, I think that that's really important to do your work and to, you know, really see and learn about the type of um, trainings and, and different specializations or um, if they even know about the seven core themes or issues around adoption. Um, I think that's a big one <laughs> that always says something to me. Um, but I do think that, you know, like Angela said, the grief and loss and, and the trauma-informed um, and somatic work is really, I think, important um, and really helps as, as individuals in a community to do some really great healing work. So I think that lastly, you know, in regard to folks that are trying to understand 
and connect with their identities in multiple ways as adoptees or transracial adoptees or adoptees of color is to really seek out the community. You know, so I think that one of the silver linings of the pandemic is they're probably global. You know, we know of several. And so there are so many ways that people can connect. And then again, you know, podcasts like yourselves or Adapted, which is another long-term, you know, where so many people, when they're getting their sea legs on what it means to them, is so powerful for them to listen intently and share with others. Sorry, what's a sea leg? (laughs) (laughs) Those are things I don't have. (laughs) Hannah, do you know what it is? I'm incomplete. I have no idea. Yeah, you know, like you're just um, finding your footing, like find uh, on the sea floor, getting getting your bearings (laughs) on a a boat. So it's kind of like they talk about people who get seasick. And eventually they, they, they get their sea legs. I literally have never heard of this before. <laughs> I was just nodding I very weird things intently. Like, like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Sea legs, yes. Zero idea what you're doing. So. <laughs> oh, I'm so oh, glad you asked. <laughs> that is hilarious. What is a sea leg? <laughs> Let's just start with their plural. It's a plural. (laughs) (laughs) This makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) We have prepared our um, rapid fire frivolous random question segment for you. Um, (laughs) Okay. 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 Oh, so number one, what's your favorite comfort food? Ramen. <laughs> Very easy. <laughs> I'm going to get an A on this. <laughs> an instant ramen? Well, actually, I survived on that all through undergrad. Yeah, that was like my only food I needed to eat. Break an egg in it, done. Mm. Yeah, I could eat that every day. I'm a little more sophisticated now, <laughs> but I will eat that. <laughs> Robin? Wow. I, mine probably, I'm just thinking these days with the pandemic, it's been a, a Oreo McFlurry. That's been it. Oh, <laughs> I nice. have just craved that. And that's kind of what I've um, sought after every time I've needed something. Um, so Oreo McFlurry. Mm, nice. Yeah. Okay, next. Um, Robin, because you kind of mentioned this earlier, what Hogwarts house from from Harry Potter would you be sorted into? Well, I've been sorted (laughs) into Ravenclaw, which I was pleasantly surprised by, but I've always identified more as a Hufflepuff. So (laughs) I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't make it into the house of Hufflepuff. Um, So I actually have fused it together. I consider myself a Raven Puff. So how did you get sorted, Robin? Who sorted you? There is a site. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've done it multiple times. (laughs) I thought you'd be a Gryffindor, Robin. No, no, I, I don't think so. I think that uh, I'm definitely a Hufflepuff for sure. 
and I'm proud of it too. <laughs> yeah. I've, okay. I've never been sorted, so I don't even know. You can lot. name me. You can give me my home. Ooh, the power. Consultation. We are sorting you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three. What is something you've learned from the pandemic? Dance will get you through anything. Movement. Mm. That from yeah. our over 52-week dance Zoom party, that that is music and dance and community is life-giving and that that truly um, just in your body can be a way to heal when you have the rest of the world in complete chaos and that you can just find joy and community and dancing. So I think that's a big thing for me. How does that work? Sorry. Like, so you just, is it just a free dance? I, I need to organize one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so incredible. I think that's one of the beautiful thing about Zoom is we've, we really created it down to like a science where we had a playlist. Everyone contributed on a Google doc. So we had everyone's contributions and songs and then we audio share, which we later figured out. Um, but we used to sync it like five, four, three, two, one, everyone would play their playlist, but then we had it synced so that um, you could hear it. And then we were all just dancing I mean that's pretty vulnerable some of my friends would be like you what I would never do that like but it just would be awesome we would have like fun backgrounds and things and just would just dance for about an hour um we realized that was like the sweet spot and yeah it it just it was crazy yeah and you know we could we would drag our partners in on it you know like and they're like really like "Mm -hmm." right like come on (laughs) yeah yeah. And lots of animals. Yeah, lots of animals. And as far as what I learned in the pandemic, I learned that I have a limit, which I mm. didn't really test much before and didn't even know about. And then during the pandemic, it was like, oh, yeah, that's as far as I can go. Mm. So that was kind of interesting. It was good for me. Okay, next. Um, do you have a favorite quote does something come to mind? I, I love, I mean, I've been thinking more recently too about Resma Medicum's work. And I just, I love a quote that he says, which is, I've been doing the work since I was in the womb. And I think that really resonates with me that, um, especially as an adoptee, we've just been doing the work already pre kind of and, and postpartum and beyond. And so I think I, I love that quote just because I think it really, um, speak so deeply to our experience um, as people of color, as adoptees, and just, um, I don't know, mm. kind of the continued and continuous work that we, we've we been doing. For me, uh, it's kind of the, the header on my website. And, uh, you know, things that I, you know, I'm sort of very connected to the arts. And one of my... <clears throat> favorite artist is Louise Bourgeois, who, you know, really um, channeled so much in her work. And she had this quote, uh, I am a searcher, I always was, and I still am searching for the missing piece. And so that's been something that I feel has always been part of my journey. Thank you. Um, Last TV series or movie you watched and loved? The White Lotus, <laughs> um, as per recommendation from uh, one of the spaces that we're in, hearing about it 
sparked my curiosity, I was also on a trip uh, headed back home to Minnesota. So I think it kind of set me up for just really realizing like how dysfunctional (laughs) things and lives and families just are. Um, But particularly, uh, I I think in certain, I I don't know, that show just kind of rocked me in different ways. I'm still kind of processing and trying to analyze it. Um, But that one was one that I just like nonstop watched. And um, yeah. 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 I can't think of a favorite, but I happen to like TV series that are in foreign languages, whether they're Korean, Icelandic, Norwegian, I don't know what it is. And I love being able not to understand what people are actually the content, but you can see the different kinds of expressions that people have that are culturally norms for them. You know, like some, you know, we in America are very like this and, you know, in other countries, it's much more And so I enjoy those very regularly. Right now I'm watching a Spanish one called The Innocent. And I just want to clarify that The White Lotus isn't my favorite, but it just was. (laughs) 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 It's one that I most recently watched. Let me (laughs) Anyway. Okay, final question. Um, Something that you each love about the other. The most expansive mind and generosity, that's Robin Park. Received. Um, I think Mm -hmm. Angela has, to me, just embodied and embodies just this incredible heart and caring love that just in in all different ways, whether it's she's an incredible gift giver, literally an incredible (laughs) gift giver, or just the ways that she gifts uh, her presence and her caring self in so many ways and shows up. Um, I mean, it's just extraordinary. I've never felt that so deeply with somebody and, and just the ways in which Angela moves through the world is, is phenomenal. Not only dancing, but also just how she does so much. I mean, she has a lifetime below her service that we've, we've really just touched as a therapist that there's so much there. And I just admire her so much for, for all that she's yeah. lived and the ways that that yeah. does inform who she is. No, that was really beautiful. <laughs> mm. I want to say thank you both so much for, um, you know, even your warmth and generosity that came across from our very first um, email exchanges um, and and throughout this whole conversation and the how you're both serving the community, um, I just, I have this image from our conversation today of, um, I don't know, like a Jedi Knight or something kind of like forging this path ahead and kind of um, lighting the way for for all of us and um, the younger generations of adoptees. And, and particularly, thank you, Angela, for being a mentor and I'm sure... B- you know, being one of the first transracial adoptee therapists in our community, um, I'm sure that that was, like, lonely at times to, to be a pioneer and, um, yeah, forge that path. Just like I, I think it's been lonely sometimes for some of my um, older Korean adoptee friends who have been living in Seoul for, you know, m- much longer than I have. Um, so... Thank you. And thank you both 
this conversation it's been I, I have like a lot of feels now <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah it's been such a warm experience I mean normally I'm very mortified to do these kind of things because I feel very self-conscious but I kind of want to like go have dinner with you right now and it's a little hard because we're not too close to each other one day it happens yeah 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 so thank you so much for giving us you know that that's part of the thing that feels so incredible to feel safe to be who i am feels so powerful like mm. it is it's a gift that you're giving Thank, Thank you. you both so much for inviting us into this space and um, and recognizing our connection. I think that that's something that, um, you know, I, when you said that about the Jedi Knight, you know, I always say that Angela is like my Jedi master. And so I just think that there's so much to that, that like, you know, um, we're honored to be doing the work, but, you know, it's just, um, I think just as much of an honor to be surrounded by community and um, yeah. just being able to do it all together. Because mm-hmm. your podcast totally, is incredibly yeah. impactful and influential, and personally for me too, has just meant so much um, along the the years that you've been doing it. So, um, so thank you both so much for yeah. your contributions. That's right. Um, thank you. Thank you. We really loved connecting with Angela and Robin. And this conversation reminded us that although the pandemic continues to test and isolate us in various ways, we're not alone. I know how overused that expression is, but you're really not alone. You don't have to navigate this adoptee experience alone, and you don't have to bear all your challenges alone. There are always new resources to be found and new connections to be made. So if you haven't quite found your tribe yet, or perhaps the pandemic has strained some of your personal relationships, keep looking, keep reaching out. We are both cheering you on. Speaking of new resources, check out Robin's new podcast, Labor of Love, a podcast that centers and amplifies the voices of BIPOC adoptees navigating parenthood. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and follow on Instagram at Labor of Love Podcast. You're in Korea, right? And Yes. I've been living here for about two years. And for a year and a half, I was working at a Korean company as an English copywriter. So I was writing advertising mm. material for, um, for Samsung. Uh, I've had quite a meandering um, professional, professional journey. I, I, I majored in music um, straight out of high school, classical music, and was working as a freelance singer for um, about 10 years. I went back in, to university and did a bachelor's degree, just the, that part, in psychology. And then I've done a lot of community work in, yeah, in the adoption community. Yeah, and then I moved here. I had a undeniable desire to experience life in Korea and it's been very hard but um but it's really been hugely helpful in um in fully knowing who I am so yeah yeah well this is us right I mean we all do these things and they just make total sense (laughs) 
Yeah, I was also thinking about recently about that kind of meandering, and I think Hannah and I have chatted about this because um, I feel like my life has sort of been like that too, just in terms of interests and sometimes the different communities that I've been parts of, and then moving a little bit too. I think there's, you know, in in my thirties now, just coming to accept that that's not that doesn't subtract in any way from you know my life, even though. You, you look around and you see everyone on these kind of like seemingly planned <laughs> trajectories and pathways. And you're like, how the hell are they doing that? How the hell are they doing what they said they were going to do five years ago? And now they're here doing it. Um, I think that that level of acceptance has been like difficult, but quite, I think, liberating. I wonder yeah. if that's maybe an adoptee kind of thing. <laughs> Meandering certainly makes sense, but I think, you know, your acceptance of what your experience contributes to who you are. It took me a lot of years of therapy of that because I also had such decades of whatever that looked like. And I always kept thinking, well, if I had just been like these other people, <laughs> you know, if I had just been, then I would have, you know, but we don't know that, you know, I think that what I can contribute now is definitely based on everything I've already done, not just mm-hmm. the last five years or 10 years. And so I really applaud that you have that in your 30s, you know, already, <laughs> that it all made sense. <laughs> Does that mean you came to work as a therapist later in life, Angela? Oh, God, yes. Oh. I had a 30 year career doing something else. Uh, what were you doing? I was doing fashion. So I came from a whole world of doing that from soup to nuts soup to nuts what, what does that mean <laughs> Anna, I'm, after that, Angela. Anna, I'm so glad you asked because I was like I can't ask again <laughs> I just threw that in there that just means you know everything from soup, soup, to to nuts. Nuts. soup to nuts so yeah I you know was in production I was in design I was in marketing so I kind of did everything for wow. 30 years wow. and then I realized that I wanted to do something more useful so yeah there are what it, I mean I guess it would actually be we had this conversation earlier today in our group you know like coming out of the fog and so I don't know that I came out of the fog in the same way but I definitely realized that I was wanted to aim toward this part of my life. I just didn't know what this would look like. Mm -hmm. So pretty much every step of the way, it's been just, you know, my jaw is dropping from, wow, I did not know it could look like this. Because it really was a very organic development. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 